Welcome to Creating Your Happy Place, a podcast that explores how our spaces support or sabotage our happiness and then empowers you to do whatever it takes to get happy at home. I'm Rebecca West, host of Creating Your Happy Place and author of the book, Happy Starts at Home, and I'm so glad you're here today. Now we've all been spending a lot of time in our homes lately, and many of us are starting to feel a bit trapped in our spaces. So with that in mind, I thought it would be really great to hear from an expert on small space living so that we can all take away some tricks for making our homes live large, no matter what size they are. Our guest today has been living tiny since before it was cool to live tiny. I am thrilled to welcome to the show, currently living in New York with her husband and five-year-old son in a 690 square foot apartment, author of the book, The Little Book of Living Small, Laura Fenton. Welcome, Laura. Thanks for having me. I'm so glad you're here today. Now, I read your book cover to cover, and I love all the case studies you shared of folks that are living tiny all over the United States. And what I'm wondering is, when you interviewed all the people who were living small, did you find anything that you all had in common? Like, was there something about each of the families who were living small that made it suit them especially well, or could anybody really do this? I think that anybody could do it. Uh, the common thread between all the homeowners and renters and families and single people featured in the book was that they were choosing to live small. Um, it was all people who had made some level of conscious choice to choose a smaller home over a larger home. Mm-hmm. And they were all people who had at one point or another lived in bigger places. So they, they knew that, you know, When they were saying less is more, it was from lived experience. Although I would say that the book is really, you know, it's celebrating living small and I would say it's encouraging living small, but it's really filled with practical advice for living small, kind of whether you meant to or you didn't mean to, it's going to help you very well. So did you, I'm curious about you, did you grow up living tiny? Did you grow up in a giant house? How did what you experienced as a child influence what you're doing now? Um, well, I, I grew up in a pretty big house. <laughs> um, my, when I was very young, I lived in New York City with my parents, and then they moved out to the suburbs, and I grew up in a big, old Victorian house. Um, oh. a, I mean, I, I don't know the exact square footage, but it was, it was a very big house, um, and a beautiful house, and a house that um, my parents took a lot of pride in, and a house that I watched them, you know, strip paint from old wainscoting and wallpaper and the 80s decorative painting on the walls. (laughs) You know, they they really loved their home and their home was a big part of their identity. So that definitely um, influenced my thinking about home, that it it made me, you know, hold it as something to value. Um, But then for me, living small just I mean, it was a natural byproduct of living in New York City. Um, right. You move to New York City, you're going to be living small. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Even the big houses are small houses. <laughs> yes. And um, but I'd say for me, um, there were points where I made choices where um, I was choosing something over space. Um, I would rather live alone as a young woman in New York in a tiny studio than have a bigger amount of space with a roommate. So, you know, kind of weighing pros and cons. Um, For me, often I would choose less square footage for maybe a better neighborhood or more privacy or better daylight. Um, I never felt a big 
uh, pressure to have more space. I noticed in the book, I think it's near the end, that you did kind of give a message to your readers that it was about pushback, like that as if they're choosing to live small, that they may get some pushback from friends and family members. Uh, where yeah. did that come from? Was that something you experienced or was that something you've seen? When we purchased the home uh, that we live in today, we were expecting a baby and um, we bought a one bedroom, which we kind of turned into a, a very small two bedroom. And my parents said, are you sure you don't want you know, a bigger <laughs> apartment? Shouldn't you get a, a real two bedroom? And um, the, the math, you know, on the napkin said, no way, <laughs> we are getting this smaller apartment. And, um, you know, no regrets. We are so happy that we kept our overhead low, um, particularly during this uncertain economic time right now. Um, we have friends who did what my parents were hoping we would do, which was to stretch our budget to get the the biggest place we could afford. And some of them now, you know, have some regrets about those, the bigger debt that they took on and the bigger uh, liability that their home represents in like their larger financial picture. So, um, you know, what your family, and I think it's hard for parents too, to um, see that their children aren't living the same lives they were. Um, and I think that there is also a, a something larger and societal going on here about um, our parents' generation and ours um, that may be represented here that they are uncomfortable with. Um, that, you know, we may not in our lifetimes experience the wealth and affluence that they were blessed the time they lived in, you know, to enjoy. Um, and so there may be some discomfort from your family members if you are choosing something different than what they chose and what they might expect. Well, and there's also, whether no matter what size home you have, there's a lot of chapters we go through. And one of them is when our parents start to downsize and then they go, hey, who wants the things we own and that we've collected and that we love over the years? Yes. And if you have a larger home, that's actually, I think, an even harder conversation because if you technically have room, then it can be hard to be like, oh, I don't, I don't want your set of dishes for a hundred people, you know? Um, but living small, at least that gives you a little bit of a filter. You'd be like, I would love to have that stuff, but we just don't have room. Yes. <laughs> and, well, and these, you know, I'm learning with my own parents and my husband's parents. I mean, these are, these are tricky things to navigate. Um, my mother, I think, knows in her heart that my sister and I don't want 90% of what's in their home, but she's not letting go while she's still on this earth. She doesn't <laughs> want to hear anything about downsizing uh, because she loves her things and she's very sentimental about her things. And now you are a parent and so you're navigating it from two sides. When you think about your son growing up and what he's learning from you in your small space, what are you hoping he takes away? You know, I think I would be really proud if he values experiences over things, if he comes to understand um, sort of value of enough. 
he's five right now. And I mean, he has all the unfiltered, you know, little kid envy <laughs> that, you know, is it's very real. Um, and it it's stuff I didn't uh, know I would be navigating things like, I mean, he'll, he'll even say, oh, so-and-so has more toys than me. And, you know, to then say, I have to say, well, we have enough and, you know, this is what we have room for in our home. And, you know, to really talk through those values, it's, it's a daily task for parents, um, whether it's living small or it's just a, a conscious choice to be less of a consumer, you know, in whatever sense we have. It'll be so interesting to watch him grow up over the years and see if he turns into, you know, he rebels and turns into a maximalist or if he really embraces those values and ends up being a small space dweller himself. Yeah, I mean, I have a friend who um, we had a conversation about. He grew up as a first generation American son of immigrants. And he said that his mother's thriftiness, um, particularly with regards to things at the home, um, he did find himself rebelling against when he was an adult living on his own. He said, I'm going to take the longest shower I feel like. <laughs> and, you know, he, it, he, his natural impulse was to go the other way and to um, be less thrifty than his parents had. Um, and that, you know, he sort of had to redirect um, to think more now about conserving resources right and there's i think we all go through a rebellion phase and then out of that we can figure out our own road like what do we want to keep from our what, what we learned and what do we want to bring in that's new for ourselves just like you've been doing with creating your own small space that yeah. you guys live in um are there any specific rules that you once thought you had to follow when it came to creating home that you've since realized you do not have to follow well you know there weren't a lot of rules in my house going growing up about the home, um, but I do think um, this habit of like keeping everything, um, you know, my, my mom's the kind of person who keeps every gift she ever received and every object she ever inherited. Um, I, I don't feel that um, need and that for me would be the big change between like, you know, my experience growing up and my experience as an adult. I'm, I'm, I feel much more free to let things go. And how do you navigate that? What do you like? Cause there's, you know, there's the thing where somebody's aunt Sophie is always whenever she visits, she's going to be looking for the gift she gave you. Like what if, does that ever cause you any anxiety? And do you just re-gift things? Do you send them to goodwill? Do you return things? Do you not accept the gift at the beginning? What do you, how do you do it? You know, our, our family has uh, very much come around to understanding that we're, we're not people who want things to fill up our home. And then we, I don't know if that's something we over time communicated, but uh, we don't have too much of that. But I mean, there were definitely wedding gifts that, <laughs> you know, they, they went straight to our, our local uh, home charity shop. Um, I, I'm, I'm not like this sort of, super minimalist person who can just get rid of things. Um, sometimes it'll even take me years to get rid of something if there is like a sentimental attachment to it. Um, 
but I, I think I have like a pretty good radar at this point for like when something really just, if it's not being used, that is when I feel like it, it's time to let it go. That uh, my great aunt Susie or my uncle, they are not gonna want me to keep something in my home that is not used or loved. Um, but one thing I do really try to do is I try to um, rehome things specifically rather than just dumping a, a box of stuff at the Goodwill. Um, we like to try to give things to friends or to neighbors. Um, for me, that looks like um, the neighborhood mom's listserv saying we're getting rid of our crib finally. Who wants that? Or we also use Craigslist as a way to give things away for free. Um, sometimes if it's a big ticket item, I'll be selling it. Um, but I really hate uh, just sort of like throwing all your crap in a bag and dropping it off for somebody else to deal with. I feel like that means that there's a good chance some of those things will end up in the landfill and that there's no guarantee that they're, they're going somewhere where they will be used. So I really love to try to um, do the work of like finding the next home for my belongings. So, you know, everybody has a different concept of what living small means. Yeah. And we don't want to pass judgment because if somebody's going from a 4,000 square foot house to a 3,000 square foot house, they're going to be going through a lot of the same challenges, but your book focused or capped it at a certain size. Can you remind me what that size was? Yeah, we, um, my editor and I talked a lot about this, about what was small. So we said for a single person, less than 400 square feet. Um, for two people living together, 700, and then um, after that it was 300 per person up to 1,200 square feet. 1,200 square feet is, is much smaller than the average house in America oh, today. Um, and in particular, a 1,200 square foot home, home that doesn't also have a basement and a garage and attic and mm -hmm. all those lovely places to hide stuff away in. Um, so 1200 is pretty small, but it, it's certainly not tiny. It's just smaller than average. Yeah. And speaking of hiding things away, the other thing you do talk about in your book is you're saying don't uh, just go rent a storage unit and hide all your stuff in it. That's not what we're talking about here. Yeah. You know, and I, I feel pretty strongly about that, but uh, since the book has come out, I've, I've heard some pushback on that. <laughs> who, um, feel just as passionately that they need their storage spaces um, to make their lives work wherever they live. I, my own experience with storage space and what I've observed with others is that the things that are in there are certainly not being used in any meaningful way. And they're being saved for some day that almost never arrives. Um, certainly there are times between moves or really big life transitions when storage might be appropriate, um, but it's not a cure-all to uh, a lack of space in your home. Um, I think we should be living with the things we need and use um, every day. And I think that there are exceptions to any rule, right? So yeah, I'm sure that there are lots of people who have a very active storage unit and they're in and out of it a couple times a week and it's kind of an extension of their home. But the reality is for a lot of people that storage unit is something you, you, you access once or twice a year, maybe. And it's just about being honest with ourselves, right? If you have a very active storage unit and you're always in and out of it, then obviously it's a very effective 
use of space. But if you haven't touched it in three, six, nine months, three, six, nine years sometimes, then you want to reevaluate is the way you're spending your money in that space of, of benefit. Yeah. And, it, you know, I mean, I know people who professionally will keep a storage space, maybe for their equipment or prop stylists often have one for their mm-hmm. props. Um, and that is a whole another scenario. My own experience with storage, um, I had a storage space for six months once. I was selling an apartment and moving and our real estate broker had very gently suggested we might want to move things out of the house to show it. And we were like, sure. Yeah. Great. We'll do that. And um, I paid a premium to have a storage space near my home because I thought for sure I would need to be getting in there to get to stuff. And um, in the six months, we never went there once. Amazing. And at the end of it, my husband and I looked around and we said, what is in here? What is this huge, huge, huge closet full of stuff that we lived without for six months? Um, And I think that for a lot of people, um, what is hiding in those storage spaces, um, they no longer even specifically know what's what's in there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and I think sometimes there's a lot of categories, right? Stuff that somebody gave you or that you inherited that you don't really feel that you can get rid of either out of guilt or because some, somebody else might want it or because there's the category of things that you might need someday or the stuff that you used to like, but you're not really sure you like it anymore. Like there's so many categories that stuff yeah. can fall into. But I'm wondering, was the was it psychologically easier to get rid of a lot of that stuff because you didn't, at the time you were storing it, know you were getting rid of all that stuff? Because it's hard to downsize. Yes, I, I think it was. Um, and I think that kind of um, concurrently was around the time I really had a big awakening about um, sustainability. And that has influenced um, a lot of my thinking about what we ought to keep in our homes and, you know, what is needed versus what is excess. Because you talk about in, um, in your writing that you're doing this not just for your family. Like you say, living small will save you stress and money and lots of things that are of a personal benefit, but you're also linking it to that global benefit of your footprint and your, your, your impact on, on the world at large. Yeah, I mean, choosing to live in a smaller space is one of the things that an individual really can do to greatly reduce their carbon footprint and their energy usage. And um, it it certainly is a a choice towards a more sustainable life. So there's a quote on page 83 from one of your interviewees, Jacqueline Schmidt. And she said, getting rid of stuff is the easiest, most affordable way to create space. So I guess I'm wondering, do you think that that is really what this all comes down to? Because... That's actually really hard work. (laughs) I mean, I think in the book, Jacqueline's home is definitely the most minimalist of the homes featured in the book. And Jacqueline made a pretty big life change to go from someone who was a collector to someone who had a a very spare look. Um, I think that you can live small as someone who likes a very empty zen minimal type of home or you can have a home that is filled with books and stuff and sort of more of a maximalist um, look but as you say it doesn't have to be minimalist there's a one of the case studies um i can't remember her name but she was very maximalist she had deep rich colors on her walls and wallpaper everywhere on the ceiling Mm. 
that's uh, Shavonda Gardner, who yes. is a um, blogger and designer. And she, yeah, she's not a minimalist. Neither is um, Ellen O'Neill, was another woman living in New York City apartment who, you know, again, a collector. Um, so there's, there's no one way to I do think that um, for me, I feel best in my home when it is ordered and tidy and I know where things are and it's easy to access them. Um, and there's not some like set number of possessions or, you know, some magic formula for like what is right. But I, I think that in your gut, you know, when your home is filled with too much, with excess, and then when you need to start to do some of that work of paring back. Um, it, it's more of like a feeling than a, you know, prescription. I, I do think that if people could really take the, the mantra of less is more to heart, they might find greater contentment. Um, it's so easy to want more and to, you know, desire the Instagram perfect room or the extra room for the home office that we all want right now. Um, but to really just try to find peace with, you know, what you do have and making the most of what you do have and knowing that it is probably much more than what many people have. Well, and you gave a piece of advice, I think, later in the book about... Um, I think editing what you follow, right? So rethinking all of the newsletters that you're subscribed to and Instagram accounts that you follow, right? Um, well, I think that for me, um, if there's not triggers for want, that is helpful. I mean, we are really vigilant about keeping catalogs out of our house. I don't like to get... Um, emails from brands that I have shopped with before where they're trying to tell me there's a sale. So I'm a, I'm a pretty aggressive unsubscriber. I'm a person who calls up and says, take me off the mailing list. Um, because I, that just feels like noise to me. Um, and then with, in terms of, um, like the, the bubble of social media, um, it's, it's super, uh, addicting stuff. <laughs> um, and I think we all struggle with like finding balance with how we consume social media. Um, but I try to just really limit the time that I'm looking at it and not have it be a constant throughout my day. Um, for me, that's the, the filter I'm putting on is to try and find set times that I do sit down and have my mindless scroll. Because um, it also is an opportunity to meet people and connect with people. And I've, I mean, I, I find myself now referring to friends who are people I've, I've never met in real life, but who have become my friends because of the connections we've made online. So there's, there's good and there's bad. Yeah, and, there's, and that's true with everything, right? There, everything can be taken to an extreme in any direction. So it's about finding the right balance for yourself which takes us back to small space living because it's exactly yeah. the same thing. I, w I would kind of think 
and I don't know if this is true. I, I really like changing up my home. You know, <laughs> I like tweaking it and refreshing it and adding a new paint color over here, a new throw, throw pillow over there. But I would think in small spaces that they might be a little bit more static because there's less rooms to change. Is, is that your experience or do they kind of change and morph over time just as much as large spaces? Um, I mean, I think that it depends on the person. Um, some people that is their natural, just like everything is changing all the time. Um, my homes tend to have a sort of slow and constant change, um, that happens just sort of naturally over time. Um, and it'll, sometimes it'll be triggered by you find something wonderful that you can't possibly say no to and you want to bring it home or, Recently, in my case, my sister said to me, hey, this rug I've had for 10 years, <laughs> I'm not using it anymore. Do you want it back? And I said, oh, yeah, I'll take that back. And like we switched all the rugs and all the rooms trying to find a new spot for like what was for me like something coming back into my life. Um, and when you have a young child um, like we do, the that sort of piece of it is always in flux, always changing. Um, and I think that we all have changed our homes um, a lot in recent months, trying to accommodate working from home, um, schooling from home. So, you know, life, life kind of forces change on you, whether you like it or not. So true. So true. And for me, like, the, the decorative things you're thinking about, I mean, we, for example, like on our sofa, we, instead of having new like pillows all the time we just get new covers for the uh throw pillows and those take up such a little amount of space to store um it's something that i can change and there's like my summer ones my winter ones that doesn't you know take up a ton of space um in a small space bedding is something that like makes a huge, enormous change when you make your bed in a different way, you know, going from all white to brightly colorful, that's like instantly your whole home looks different. Yeah, absolutely. Like each, each choice you make has a much bigger impact, which I think mm -hmm. can be frustrating for some of my design clients in big homes. You can put a ton of energy and a ton of money into making changes and feel like you didn't even get anywhere because there's so much left to do. Whereas the small space, your energy and your effort and your money goes a lot further with each choice because there's just not as much, there's not as much on the to-do list, I would think. Yeah, I mean, um, you, it also, it's the same thing with mess. If a small space is messy, it is <laughs> messy. <laughs> and once you tidy up and get everything neat, it is, you know, like you're done. Like that is, the whole house is neat. It's not just, um, you know, you, you managed to get through the ground floor. Right. So it, it, there is some truth in that, that in the small space, all of your actions are, have a bigger impact. Yeah. Now you, I think you had, you bought this apartment and it was a one bedroom apartment. That's five, six years ago now. Yeah, it was about five and a half years ago before uh, we, we knew we were having a baby and our lease was running out and that was, you know, it was time to figure out what was next. And our apartment um, was laid out, was from the 1940s what with what would have been a, a separate dining alcove. Um, and we were really fortunate in the layout it was that could easily be turned into a place to sleep um and so that was what we chose to do when we saw the apartment it was being um marketed as a one bedroom but we we looked and said that looks like you know a place 
a baby crib could go. <laughs> um, but it finally, when we, after we'd been living there for about a year, we switched and we took the smaller room, the former dining alcove, and we gave our baby at the time the like proper bedroom because um, we wanted him to be able to sleep without us waking him up in the early evenings when we were at home. Well, I noticed that, um, uh, I can't remember if it was a case study or just one of your solutions in the book, you said that it's actually quite common for people in those tiny homes to have a Murphy bed like in the living room where the adults are sleeping so the kids can be put away at night into their bedrooms and the adults can stay up later and not have to be tucked away into their own bedrooms too. So Crystal yeah, uh, Ann Nielsen, who is a designer and influencer. Um, she was featured in the book and her home has exactly that set up. Um, she has moved since then and still has a Murphy bed in the living room. And my sister for many years uh, had a Murphy bed in her living room and let the kids have the bedroom. So it's, I think it is fairly common in places like New York or San Francisco where real estate is at such a premium that families might be staying in one bedroom longer. You talk about the Murphy beds, you, you, you do feature several bunk beds, and you also talk about really investing in some of these pieces. I know that um, some of the people you wrote about were choosing higher end beds, in, especially for the, um, the mobile ones where they're literally putting them away every single day. And I think that that was an interesting thing for me to note, like there are times to invest a little bit more, save up, as you said a second ago, so that you don't end up having a burden in your house that should have been a blessing. Oh, yeah. I mean, this is, especially for anyone considering a Murphy bed, this is like a big thing. I had a Murphy bed in an old studio apartment with a fantastic mechanism. Um, never gave me trouble, up and down every day. And I have also encountered ones that were maybe less expensive models, and they're a nightmare. Um, so something with mechanicals, um, it is definitely important to um, get things that function well. Well, I think one of the takeaways there is room labels are meaningless, right? You don't have to make a dining room a dining room just because somebody called it a dining room. Yeah, and I think that you, I, I think Albert Hadley kind of said the quote of um, forget the floor plans, like arrange the furniture, how you want to do the living. And that's definitely true. Um, there are in, throughout the book, there are so many examples of people using space in new ways. Um, Shafonda Gardner, who you mentioned before, who has a very bold maximalist style, she and her wife um, took what was like the den and made that their bedroom and gave the kids the two proper bedrooms in their house. Um, there's definitely no rules about what room is what. And then the other thing is families change. Um, Shira Gill, who we photographed her house one way, six months later, her kids, her office, her husband, like they'd all switched rooms and found a new, you know, equation that worked for their family. And I think that that is something that if you want to live small, you have to be ready to adapt and try new things and see what works. And that actually leads to a question I always like to ask, which is we know, especially when we are doing things on our own, not everything is a success, right? Yeah. Experiment. What would you say is one of the experiments that you've tried that didn't work out, a design failure that you might have learned from and then went a different road on? You know, I have a hard time with color. <laughs> um, you may notice uh, my home is very white-walled, and I've lived in a lot of white-walled places. Um, 
I've had some real <laughs> errors along the way. Um, my uh, one bedroom that I lived in uh, in Brooklyn in my sort of mid and late twenties, I painted the bedroom a terrible color of green. It was like, I think I did it on New Year's day. It was a fresh start, trying something new. And it was just the wrong color. It was not a good color. And I lived with it for six months. And that is my regret is that I didn't just, as soon as I knew it was wrong, fix it. Um, and I will also confess recently, very recently, we painted our bathroom a very dark color and I hate it. <laughs> so we're going to, we're going to go back to white there too. <laughs> That's really interesting. What, what makes you keep experimenting with color? It seems like you're quite happy with that bright white space. You know, I, greatly admire homes that are full of color. Um, I mean, that is like who I love to follow on Instagram is people with like bright, bold, colorful style. And the research that I have read also suggests that color um, does people make people happy and energizes their spaces and um, can make a space more stimulating to be in. Maybe. Although I, I find that the spaces that I like to vacation in versus live in are different. You know, I love, I'm the opposite of you. I need color in my home, yeah. but I love following these wonderful, bright, airy, plant-filled spaces. They're just gorgeous. But if I were to move into one, I'd be like, okay, what are we painting first? So I think that there is, there's something in us that craves a certain vibe for our everyday living. Um, and I think the house also has a vote you know it's like the house has its desires too the architecture speaks to what it wants as well sure and the light too i mean my my son's room actually wants a color um when you see the photos of in the book it looks very um as well daylit as the rest of our home but it it's actually pretty the where it is in the building it doesn't get as much daylight and it would do for a color in there it would suit it better than the white walls but um i haven't had the <laughs> the bravery to try that yet um so tell me about something in your home that makes you seriously happy what do you love oh well we we are so lucky we have um some art that was painted by um, people we love. I have over my bed a painting that my grandfather painted. And in my son's room, we have a painting by my great aunt. Um, and then we have four of her smaller paintings. And those are truly some of my most cherished possessions. Um, I, I find them beautiful. I love that these people, you know, who are my relatives made them. And I also really value them because they both were people who um, had other careers and lives and still um, found time to have these creative pursuits um, that they were, you know, painting uh, in addition to being a teacher or painting in addition to working, you know, in an advertising agency. And that um, to me is very inspiring that you can live a creative life and still, you know, have a nine to five job. That's really wonderful. I love that. And I love that it's speaking to the fact that having a small space does not mean it's not filled with things that are personal and unique and meaningful, maybe just fewer of them. So you may not have the entire collection of your aunt's work, but you have a piece that's that's special to you. Yeah, I'd fit a minute if someone would give me more. <laughs> <laughs> what advice would you give to somebody else who wants to create their own happy place? 
just to take it step by step. You know, it's not going to happen overnight to get your home the way that you want it is actually a lot of work and um, it will take time trying different things and slowly saving up to buy the things that you want, um, but that it is absolutely worthwhile. Um, if you're happy when you come home at the end of the day, or if you're happy when you're there all day, <laughs> um, it, it, I, I think it enriches your life. Um, and I sometimes, some days I think that what I do for work, writing about decorating and organizing is, you know, a little frivolous, but then, um, you know, ultimately our home is where our lives play out and it is very significant. So I would say if you're trying to make your home a happy place, um, just keep at it a little bit every day. Um, if you can make your sock drawer a happy place today <laughs> and get rid of every one of those singleton socks, like that's, that's a step in the right direction. Um, so just a little bit, bit by bit. I would love for people to start to think about that connection between um, sustainability and our homes. I think we've all done such a good job thinking about with things like um, the food we eat or thinking about organic and local. There was a big movement towards um, you know, sustainable fashion. But I think for home, um, it's so often people are looking for uh, a quick, cheap, solution um that may not be the best and most sustainable choice over time so a less disposable lifestyle in as many aspects as we can come up with yeah that's wonderful well where can folks find you well the little book of living small is available wherever books are sold um and that be that your local bookstore or um that really big bookseller online <laughs> Um, and then they can find me on Instagram. I'm just my name, laura.alice.denton. Absolutely. Wonderful. And of course, all those things will be in the show notes. I'm so glad that you were here today to share the conversation with me and to share your space with everybody, not just in this podcast episode, but in a book. I mean, that's a fairly vulnerable thing to do. So <laughs> it's really kind of you to give other people inspiration for creating their own small spaces. Oh, well, thank you for having me. It was a, a lovely conversation. I enjoyed every minute of it, and I hope you, our listeners, did too. I hope that you enjoyed the episode and that you feel a little bit more encouraged and empowered to make your home your happy place, no matter what size it is. Um, obviously, if you feel stuck, please check out my book, Happy Starts at Home, or Laura's book, The Little Book of Living Small. Both of them are really filled with practical advice to help you figure out you know, what could help your home work better for you? Not just aspirational. It's not just like, oh, look at these pretty pictures. Both of these books are meant to help you take action on your home and identify what needs to change and how it could change to suit you. And if you have a specific design dilemma in your home and you're really stuck, you can reach out to my team at Seriously Happy Homes. We can meet with you over Zoom to figure out those next practical steps to creating your happy place. In the meantime, no matter where you call home and no matter what size it is, I hope it makes you seriously happy. Until next time.